Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks message podcast. Our prayer and desire as you listen to today's message is that it would be an encouragement and challenge in your walk and relationship with Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at cclo.org or download our app in your app store today. Now, let's jump into today's message together. So if you have your Bibles, Revelation chapter 2. And we are walking through the seven churches. And we are in chapter 2, starting in verse 12, to the church in Pergamum. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And so every time we're walking through one of the churches here in Revelation, there's, you know, at the very beginning, we had that full description of Jesus. And then as we get to each individual church of the seven, there's a small part of that description that is used as Jesus is referencing and speaking to that specific church. And that aspect of what was described about Jesus, it's very important And it has to do with the context of what's going on in that church. And so if we look even there at that description, he's saying the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. So it has something to do with the words of Christ, with the word of God. You know, that sharp two-edged sword, there's a verse in Hebrews 4.12 that says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And in the Greek, the word for sword there in Hebrews, this means a small dagger, But here in Revelation, this is one of those big war swords that a Roman soldier would carry. This was a mass, a weapon of mass destruction in this time. And so this is the word of God that is coming forth from Jesus. And so when we have that description of Jesus, and then we look at the church, we see the connection between the two. You know, I hope that the description, like if, if there was eight churches that got a letter in Revelation and if Calvary Chapel here was one of those eight and we got a letter from Jesus, I hope that the description of Jesus that would be used is about his grace and his mercy and his love and his truth. But maybe it's a good thing we don't have a letter from Jesus from the letter, letter of uh, Patmos here. But when you look at the church in Pergamum and the description that we have So like verse 12, at the very end, it says, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, as we talked about. Verse 14, there are some that are holding to the teaching of Balaam who taught. 
And then verse 15, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Verse 16, the sword of my mouth. Even verse 17 talks about this hidden manna. I don't know what manna really is. Obviously, we have the context of it back in the Old Testament, that it was this powdery substance that came down from heaven. Israel was allowed to go out and collect it, and they would bake bread and cakes with it. It was like a fine flour, which we know bread is used as an analogy of the Word of God. Even in Matthew 4, 4, when Jesus is being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he says, man cannot live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so we see that connection, even John chapter 6, Jesus is saying, I am that bread out of heaven. And so there's something that's going on with this church in Pergamum, that the description of Jesus in regards to the word of God the sword, the words that are coming out of his mouth, that's the connection here. And so for this church in Pergamum, they're, they're commended for their orthodoxy. And that word orthodoxy just means right thinking or right doctrine. Like they understood the word. Even verse 13, it says, you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith or your faith in me. Might be a better way that that could be worded. And so they have good orthodox. Like, they have good doctrine, good theology. They're solid in that. They know the word. They're holding fast. They're not going after wrong teaching. But they are reprimanded for their orthopraxy. And that word orthopraxy just means right living. See, it wasn't right doctrine that was the issue. It was right living that Jesus is reprimanding them for. And he says in verse 14 and 15, there's this stumbling block that's being thrown in front of you. And again, we have to understand, this is an in-house conversation. This isn't, you know, the world and its attack against the church. He's talking to the church. This is a family conversation. So he's talking to a group of believers, those that are following Jesus. And he's telling them, there's some of you that you have one foot on the firm foundation that is Christ, but you're toying with trying to put the other foot on a stumbling block. And it's not only that you are doing it, you're seeing good, strong Christians firmly planted on the word of God, and you're trying to throw a stumbling block in their way. You're trying to trip them up. There might have been a season of my life, maybe when I was in middle school, that the funniest thing that I thought could ever happen was tripping people up and down the halls at school, right? The best was always walking up behind somebody and kicking their leg as they're walking. And, and not only do you trip them, you make them trip on themselves, right? I know, I'm demented. Pray for me. Even now, as a believer, I still struggle because I want to watch YouTube videos of skateboarding fails where people just crash and burn, and it brings me great joy. <laughs> and maybe a few of you are like me. And so, the, and so it's not that there's those in the world that are trying to throw these stumbling blocks to see us Christians fall. It's our own family. In a way, you could say in the body of Christ, it's an autoimmune disorder. It's not a disease that we've contracted from the outside world, an autoimmune disease within our body is the body attacking itself. And so here we have people who have placed faith in Jesus, but they're taking these stumbling blocks and trying to trip up other Christians. So not only are they standing on those stumbling blocks, they want to see other Christians stumble and fall. Yeah, I think Jesus would probably have something against that. 
for the body to attack itself, where we should be encouraging and building each other up. What Jesus is seeing in this church is, no, some of you are standing on that stumbling block and you're causing others to stumble. And a couple of the different ways is you're holding to the teaching of a couple groups here, like the example he would give. You're holding to the teaching of Balaam, who was that wicked prophet back in the Old Testament who was hired to give a curse upon Israel so that he could defeat Israel. And every time that wicked prophet tried to speak, he could only give blessing. And so since he couldn't bring that kind of cursing from God upon them, and it was only blessing, he found another way to try to cause Israel to stumble and to fall. And we see what it is. That you're holding to that teaching who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So let's talk about the first one. Food sacrificed to idols. Some of you probably are thinking of what Paul says in one of the letters to the Corinthians. Saying, hey, like if, if you have freedom to eat food sacrificed to idols, go right ahead. If that doesn't bother your conscience, that's okay. But, but don't allow your freedom to be a stumbling block to the weaker Christian, right? So in that context, like if you're just rolling through the market and they're selling a really good brisket, sign me up any day of the week, right? I'm from Kansas City. Like we know good barbecue. Like we moved down and people were like, oh yeah, there's a good barbecue place over here. And it's like, well, I'm from Kansas City. And they're like, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> and there was some pretty good barbecue down here. I'm not going to lie. But then when we kind of look at ourselves and we go back to Kansas City, it's like, yeah, it's not that good. Like, Kansas City barbecue is good. And so if I'm just rolling through and somebody has this fake altar to a fake God and they cook this cow on this altar, to me, that's just a fancy smoker. Like, I have no con. I'm like, you better throw some barbecue sauce on that. That's not going to bother me. But to some Christians, that was because they knew how that animal was sacrificed and how it was cooked. And so Paul would say, restrict your freedom for the sake of the weaker brother. But here, I think what Jesus is saying is it's not just the food that is sacrificed to idols, but the stumbling block is to be involved in the very ceremony of preparing that meat and eating the meat, that there's that ceremony of it, that you're engaging in the worship of a pagan god. And so there's these Christians in-house that are saying, yeah, faith in Jesus, absolutely, and it's okay to have this mixed worship of someone else that you can still involve in some of these ceremonies of pagan worship. He's like, yeah, I, I, I'm going to have a word against that. And then the sexual immorality. And we're not talking about the sexual immorality outside of the church. Jesus is talking to a church. He's talking about the sexual immorality that's inside the church that's plaguing inside the family of God. And a lot of times we can have that, you hear that mentality, or some of us might even have that when we're struggling with sexual sin. Let it be, let's just go with the pornography. And we use devices. And we think, oh, that's, that's a secret sin. That doesn't hurt anybody. That's just me and a device. How could that hurt anybody around? Just understand that the pornography industry at its $16 billion revenue is absolutely tied to the sex trafficking industry in our country. That if you would eradicate the pornography industry, you would absolutely decimate sex trafficking in our country, that they are absolutely connected. And so it's not just a secret little sin. It's not something that's just hurting you, it's hurting your families, 
and it's hurting those that you don't even know. And it is a real issue inside the church. And so what Jesus would want to see from us is that purity and righteousness, that the manner in which we live specifically within our sexuality, that does matter to God. So let it be a device, let it be with a person. He does take that serious. And we, as the body of Christ, need to stand firm. Because there's a couple airs that we could have when we're talking about our orthodoxy or our orthopraxy. That there's a danger that we could over-focus on one and diminish the other and think that it's okay. Right? So there's one air that would say that we could, as long as we believe right, yeah, absolutely, Jesus, 100% God, 100% man, came to the cross, died for my sins, salvation only in him, that we could have absolute right doctrine. And we can fall into the air that as long as that we can believe right, we can live wrong. Because God will forgive us, right? He's a forgiving God. That his blood is paid for all of my past, present, and future sin. And so we use the blood of Jesus as a license to sin. Paul would say, hell no. In Romans 6, when he says, may it never be. That Greek language, that's literally what he's saying. That how could you understand that the blood of Jesus poured out for your sin to use that as a, a, a license to continue in the very sin that put him on the cross? No. It would be disgusting to Paul to think of that. Like he'd be like throwing up in his mouth, like that, that gag a maggot to continue on in that lifestyle for the very thing that Jesus died for. And so we can fall into that air, that over-focusing, that as long as I believe right, I can just live wrong because God will forgive me. No, that is not right thinking and that is not right living. And you can study James 2 and understand that even the demons have really good theology. The demons understand that God is one, and they shudder. The demons have orthodoxy. And so we can't fall into the trap to think that, oh, we can just, as long as we believe right, it doesn't matter what I do on Friday, Saturday, but as long as I'm here on Sunday. It doesn't matter what I look at and click at. It doesn't matter who I talk to. No. That because we are saved by grace through faith, it matters how we live. And so then we can fall into the air on the other side. You know, a common thought is, oh, well, I'm a good person. I'm going to heaven. Heaven's not for good people. It's for forgiven people, just so you know that. And so we can fall into that air. And I can understand it. I mean, just call it what it is. Uh, just because somebody doesn't have right theology doesn't mean that they are a horrible, dirty, rotten sinner and they're just living for everything that is just depraved in our world. There's atheists that live more moral than Christians in our world. That there are people that have no faith in Jesus whatsoever, but they love the poor and the oppressed, and they stand for the voiceless. Now, their motivation, obviously, is different, but there's people that live at very high moral standards. And then we can fall into that air thinking that, oh, I'm a good person, I'm going to heaven, which Romans 3.20 would absolutely tell us that no one would be justified by works of the law. That the law was a tutor to show us our sin. And you can't keep the law perfect enough to be saved. Only a savior can save us. And so it's always pointing back to Jesus, not just in our right thinking and our right doctrine, but also in our right living. 
See, Christ is our foundation, both in our position as a believer, having that right thinking, that right doctrine, understanding that my identity in Christ because of my faith in him, he is my foundation. That the world doesn't define me, what I do doesn't define me, the things that I have or the things that I don't have, that doesn't define me. Christ defines me. He is my foundation, but he's also our foundation in our practice as believers, not just in our position as believers, but Christ is our foundation in our practice or our orthopraxy, our right living. So the things that I do are because of Christ. The things that I don't do anymore as a follower of Jesus are because of Christ. And it's hard because we're going to get the slap from the world that are going to attack us and think, oh, you just think you're better than everybody. You don't do these things and you do these things. You just think that you're better. And I, I'm not better than anybody. I'm, a, I'm the chief sinner. I'll go toe-to-toe with any of you dirty, rotten sinners. I'm far worse. But Jesus is far better. I'm not better. I've been saved by grace. I know who I am without Christ. I'm not better than anybody. I live to the standard of morality, not because of what I think is right, but what God reveals in his heart for me. And we have to understand that both of these are always connected. Sometimes we in the church, we want to kind of separate them and we want to overfocus. So as long as we're good doctrine and right thinking, then everything's fine. Or, you know, because we don't want to get into that works-based salvation. I'm, we're talking about the family. This is a family conversation. These are words written in red to the church, not just Pergamum, but even for us, Calvary Chapel. And we have to use the word of God and look, not using it as binoculars to look at everybody else and to point out their sin and their pagan worship and their sexual immorality. We have to use the word of God as a mirror to our own lives and our own heart and our own mind. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, well, I don't deal with pagan worship and I don't struggle with sexual immorality. Well, keep looking at the word and you can deal with your lying as well. None of us are immune to it. None of us are immune to it. And it is an absolute tactic of Satan to take something beautiful, something that is to bring unity and intimacy within the biblical context of marriage. It's described as the gift. God could give you anything as your wedding gift, and he gave us that. Of course, we have an enemy that wants to take that and twist it and misuse it and pervert it and to bring about the thing that was supposed to bring a greater intimacy and life within marriage to bring absolute destruction. And some of you might be thinking, well, what if I'm living in sexual immorality right now? Put your faith and your trust in Jesus, not just as your position as a believer, but even as the practice of a believer. Well, I might lose my girlfriend or my boyfriend, or I might lose, okay. Do you not trust God with that? And you might be thinking, oh, pastor, you don't know. You probably just gave your life to the Lord when you were five years old, and you've been following Jesus ever since. No, I'm telling you that as a part of my testimony. That in my fallen away from Christ BC days to live in that sexual immorality and then for me and my fiance at the time to give our lives to the Lord, we looked at each other and said, we're living in sin. We have to restrict 
our sexuality in order to honor Christ with our lives. We didn't think it was that big of a deal. We looked at the pastor that was doing our premarital counseling, and we said, we, we know it's probably not that big of a deal because, you know, we've already fell into that sin, but now that we've truly given our lives to the Lord, we want to honor him with our lives, and so, so we're going to practice abstinence until we're married. And we know it's only five months, and that's not probably a big deal to the Lord. And he said, no, this is a, this is a big deal to the Lord. Anytime a believer puts his faith and his trust in Christ and wants to serve Christ with his life and wants to walk in obedience to the Lord, that's a big deal. And so I've been there to look at my life and to, and to allow my right thinking to change my right living in order to continue in faith and put my obedience and trust in Jesus, absolutely. And, and we each have to guard that. Even, okay, now you're married, pastor, so everything's fine. No, I still have to fight and stand guard a life of purity. And pagan worship, where am I putting all my time and my treasure and, and all of my focus? What's, what is getting that? And, and just to give you like a, a window, as if I'm not being transparent enough with you this morning, ministry can be a pagan worship for us pastors, that we allow ministry, we allow the pulpit to define us. Who would we be if I'm not the lead pastor of Calvary Chapel, Lake of the Ozark? And you might do the same thing with your position. You might do that same thing as being a parent of young kids. Who would you be without your kids? And you allow that to be your identity too much. There's all these things that we, it's a slippery slope of us trying to put our foot on a stumbling block. And again, Satan doesn't care what it is. He just doesn't want both of your feet firmly planted on Christ. To this church in Pergamum, the issue, pagan worship and sexual immorality. And it could be the same for us today. And all I can say is, Lean into it with faith. Put faithful people around you with good accountability. They're going to speak truth into your life. Don't walk away from that because it's going to hurt. It's going to be hard. It's going to be awkward. Well, how do I bring up that with someone? Easy. Say, I love you more than the awkwardness that we're about to have this conversation because you're not walking with the Lord. Maybe in your orthodoxy, and it could be even in your orthopraxy. But we can't separate these two. As followers of Jesus, these are absolutely tied together. Like Titus 3.8. I love what Paul says here. He says, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. So he's telling Titus. He's training him up. He's, Titus is a pastor over some churches. He's like, this is a trustworthy thing, and I want you to insist on that in the church, okay? So that those who have believed in God... Good orthodoxy, believed in God, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. That we need good orthodoxy and orthopraxy. These things are excellent and profitable for people. We see these two things always tied in Scripture. It would, it would not be well of us to try to separate it in the Word of God. You know, so if you look at Exodus 20, where the Ten Commandments are given to Israel, Usually you have to start in like verse two or three to get to the first commandment. And a lot of times we skip right over verse one that says, because I redeemed you out of Israel, this is how I want you to live. See, even with Israel, God led with the relationship that he had with Israel. Then the expectation of how to live. The book of Romans, 
start reading Romans, again, the first couple of chapters are going to talk about condemnation. We are all lost and broken away from God. Get into chapters three to five, you're going to talk about justification and how to become saved. Six, seven, and eight, you're going to talk about sanctification and how to grow in your walk with the Lord. Nine, 10, and 11, vindication, the plan for Israel. Good, thick, deep theology. And then what happens when you get to chapter 12? Application. Because of everything that I just studied and read, how do we live this out in our normal, everyday lives? The book of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, the first three chapters talk about the calling of the believer, understanding your position. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, the conduct of a believer, that Paul wasn't just dropping theological bombs. He wanted us to understand because of who Christ is and what he's done, because of that theological bomb, it should have a direct impact in our everyday normal lives. The understanding who Jesus is should absolutely change how we live. You could even say it this way, that if people understand our theology, they should understand our orthopraxy. If they understand what we believe, they should be able to follow and see how we live, and it connects. In the same breath, people should see how we live and say, you live like kind of different. There's something kind of different about you. You don't operate like the, the world. And what they're asking is, hey, tell me about Jesus, who is so important to you that he impacts your everyday life. So, so the world around us could start at either one and trace it back and always end up at Jesus in our right thinking, our right doctrine, our right theology, and our right living, our behavior, our practice as believers in Jesus. Because what we have to understand, I love this quote, moral obligations, because a lot of times in the church we talk about what we are, we are obligated to do as Christians and how we are to live. And, we, and sometimes we can struggle with that, but you have to put it in the right frame of mind. Moral obligations are always given out of gospel declarations. Moral obligations are always given out of gospel declarations because who Jesus is, because of his blood, because of his forgiveness, because of the power of the resurrection, we are called to live a different life. And it's so transforming that the best way that Paul could talk about it in 2 Corinthians is to say, yeah, you're a new creation, you don't just have like a new shirt on. You know what it's like to get new clothes. Remember that before school started? Get new clothes, new kicks, and that was always kind of fun. Then they lasted, what, two days? They're all dirty, and your mom just yell at you, I just bought you those clothes. But we all love to get a new pair of shoes or new clothes. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's not just putting new stuff on us, even though, yes, we are clothed in his righteousness. But that indwelling power of the Holy Spirit is bringing a new creation in us. So the B.C. Nick who lived in that sexual immorality and pagan worship, yeah, he's a new creation. Sometimes in our lives we look back at who we used to be, and, and it's almost like they were different people. I think one time I even asked my wife, I was like, I wonder what he's up to nowadays. She's like, well, I heard he's a pastor. I'm like, wow, why would they allow him? Oh, that's me. Okay, right, okay. All right, I'm tracking, I'm tracking here. And so these moral obligations given out of gospel declarations. And so we are called to conquer. And again, this isn't the fight to the outside world. <laughs> That's coming. And we're not leading in that. 
This is a battle of our heart and our mind. That's where the battleground is going to be won or lost. That's where we are going to be defeated or we're going to conquer. And so Jesus says, to the one who conquers, meaning there's no participation trophies, not everybody gets a blue ribbon, that some of you will not conquer and you will be conquered by this pagan worship or the sexual immorality. And that's a hard thing to say. And I promise you, it's a much harder thing to see. But how many of us have family or friends when we look at their lives or say, in the church, not those outside, absolutely, they're being conquered by it. But even inside the church, how many of us have loved ones that we would say, they're being conquered by sin? There is freedom in Christ. And so to the one who conquers, turn to Timothy, if you would, 2 Timothy. This is one of the most personal letters that Paul writes. He's writing to Timothy, and this is right before he's killed and beheaded for his faith and for preaching. And, and he's kind of just handing off the mantle of ministry to Timothy. And I'm jumping in, Tim, first, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Very uh, Romans 1.16. Do not be ashamed of the gospel, right? And, and, you know, like a good pastor, you can take a small message and make it long, so skip down to verse 11. He's talking about the word of God, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until the day, capital D, so we're looking for a specific day, and that is obviously the day that the Lord is returning, and what has been entrusted to me. So all of us as believers, followers of Jesus, you have been entrusted with the gospel, that when he saved us by grace through our faith and our response to him, surrendering our lives, he's entrusted us, these jars of clay, the gospel. We on the outer look just earthenware, just a common household object, but we hold the greatest treasure that has been, like, let that word just like weigh on you and trust it. You can't trust everybody, can you? Right? Like, I remember the first time I had to hand my keys to my 15 year old daughter, and I'm in the passenger seats, and I have to entrust her with driving my car. And we went right into the ditch. Like, I had to reach over, grab the wheel. It was awesome. Wait, God. The Lord Jesus looks at us and he entrusts us with what? His gospel. And the gospel is never meant to stop at us. We don't just hold it. But the gospel is always meant to flow through us. And he says, verse 13, so follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me and in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. And look at verse 14. And by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And so how do we have the ability and the power to have good thinking, to have right doctrine, solid theology that we can build our lives on? It's the power of the Holy Spirit to open up our heart and our mind to the depths of the word of God. So as a believer, you don't need me. You need the word of God and the spirit of God. 
and to lean in and allow him to illuminate the text and to land it on your heart so that it is lived out. And then how do we live in this world that is absolutely everything anti-God? By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. How are we able to say no to sin and say yes to righteousness? How can we walk in the midst of absolute perversion of our world and stand firm in purity and holiness and righteousness and in love and truth and grace and mercy of God by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us? That we need him in our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy. So by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. This is a good deposit that he's given you. Not just right thinking, but right living. So to live for Jesus, whatever behavior that we need to restrict out of obedience to Jesus, that's a good deposit that is given to us. And whatever we're not walking in, but we need to as followers of Jesus, that's a good deposit. That means like there's good things that God has for you and you, you don't want to walk in them. And so every one of us need to take the word, look at our heart and our life as that mirror and say, where am I not walking? Where am I holding back the good deposit that God has for me? And where am I walking that I need to restrict that kind of behavior because I've been entrusted with a good deposit? We need to guard that both in our doctrine and in our duty, our position and our practice as believers. But who are we guarding it from? And again, to guard it means that we're going to give it. To guard the gospel, the gospel is meant to flow through us. So if we're guarding it well, it should be pouring forth from us. And not just in our words, but in our actions. And not just in our actions, but in our words. It's both and, not either or. But who are we guarding it from? Who are the Balaams and the Nicolaitans today? You're like, well, Pastor Nick, that sounds kind of like your name right there. Are you trying to lead us into sexual immorality, into pagan worship? What are the stumbling blocks for the church today? Again, not what the world is stumbling upon, not what they're chained and oppressed by the enemy, but where is the church stumbling today? See, I fully believe that the enemy is on full attack on God's design of man and woman. You cannot convince me otherwise. I believe it's a full assault attack on God's design of man and woman. There's a full assault attack on God's design for the family. It's one of the reasons that Adventure Week is family-focused and not just kid-focused. Because I grew up in that home. Like, if you wanted to transform my life, you needed to reach my parents. I, I would go to a week-long church event, and it was wonderful, but I went back to the same hardships and brokenness because I believe it's a full assault on God's family. And you might be thinking, well, what happens if there's like a dad and a stepmom? That's, or or, a, or a, a mom and a stepdad, or what if it's just a single parents? What if it's grandparents or an aunt and uncle? What if it's a foster family that's bringing one? Or what if they're adopted? We're gonna hold fast to God's design for family, that we understand that the family of faith is not just biological, but there's a lot of good spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers out there. And there's a lot of great kids that need a spiritual father and a spiritual mother. And we're going to lean into that of God's design for family. 
I think there's a full assault attack of God's design of sex and marriage. Again, the thing that was supposed to be this unifying, intimate, causing thing in marriage is now used to absolutely bring destruction to marriages. Or even if the relationship would even get to that point to walk in obedience to what God would have for us fully. I think there's a full assault on God's design of the church. Any of you older cats with me that have been coming to church for a few decades, have you seen a shift in the church? And I'm talking broad brush, right? Have you seen a shift in the church? Have you seen the things that you wouldn't even have whispered within the church now are being proclaimed and affirmed from the pulpit? It's a full assault attack. That's why it's not against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle that we're in. It's a spiritual battle that we're in. And the enemy is absolutely against everything that God has designed. Even in our study of Jude, one of the quotes that we had was, every truth of Scripture has a counterfeit lie present in the culture. If you want to know the next biggest thing that we're going to be under attack, just look for the next biggest truth in God's Word, and you'll find it. Because everywhere that God's firm, God's word affirms his heart, his righteousness, his holiness, and how he expects us to follow suit in it, yeah, the world's absolutely going to attack it. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. It's not the threat of the world around us. It's the threat that's happening inside the church. And so where's the enemy winning? I think that's a good question that we need to ask ourselves. Where is the enemy winning in the church? Because then we can have a good defense. We can be aware of that, right? That is always good to have some good reconnaissance as any good army would have. The enemy is winning today with Christians, and I'm paraphrasing or air quoting that for sure, where Christians are surrendering their orthopraxy and losing their orthodoxy, right? In order to live however they want and to fit into the culture around them, they deconstruct their faith. And I'm talking from a personal level that I have friends that I grew up going to church camp with that have been in ministry at the same time. But in order to fit into the culture around them where things where the word of God is absolutely against what the world would value, they've made a decision. And any person that I've ever listen to or talk to that have deconstructed their faith. It is never started with an orthodox situation. It wasn't a doctrinal or theological issue. It was always a lifestyle issue. And so we are surrendering our orthopraxy and we're losing our orthodoxy. And I get it. If there's no accounts of God, you don't have to be accountable to him. There's uh, a couple of them have passed, I believe, but there's four strong atheists that are in the um, atheistic intellectual movement that has absolutely attacked the church and anything religious. Um, you can Google them and find their names. And one of them, one of the reasons for his strong atheism, he said, I want to live however I want, and I want the sexual freedoms of that. And if I have to account for a God that has standards upon my life, then I would have to be accountable to him. So I reject him so that I could live, have the orthopraxy that I want. See, God is real. And he did send his son. And he went to the cross. He went to the grave and he rose again. That's why apologetics and defending our faith is so important. That it's not just a spaghetti monster in a sky and the feelings that we have of this warm Jesus that just pets sheep on a grassy hill. No, we have a conquering king 
who killed death and holds the keys to the kingdom. And because of who he is and what he's done for us, I've surrendered and submitted my life to him. And my life is accountable to him. And so the things that I walk in, I'm gonna have to answer for. And he wants to see that lifestyle change in me, that, that I'm still in process. I'm still in that sanctification of becoming like Jesus. And the truth is, is that's all of us, that there's still that work that he wants to do. But I know it, it's difficult. It's gonna put us in some weird situations. Some of you might be like, oh, you don't understand, Pastor Nick, like you work at the church, bunch of believers. Have you seen the staff? They're rough, right? <laughs> like I work construction though. You don't know what it's like. These dudes, man, they, they get raunchy with their, jo their jokes. Let no coarse jesting come out of your mouth. But you don't understand what it's like working there. Like it's easy to fall into it. Oh, I know it's easy to fall into it. Think that doesn't plague us? See, one commentator said this, and I love this quote, a difficult environment never justifies compromise. So what do you do in those really difficult environments that we're in? Because we live within the world, but we're not of this world. Put your faith and your trust in Christ. Allow the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to guard your heart and your mind, to guard your orthodoxy and your orthopraxy. But it never gives us an excuse to justify compromise. And so how do we respond? How do we conquer this? Hold fast to the word. Hold fast to the word of God. Not just in right thinking, but also in right living. And what does the word of God say that we should do with people that hate us for our faith in Jesus? What do we do with those people that reject us because of our faith in Jesus and the lifestyle that it requires? We love them. That's what the word of God says to do. We love them and we serve them. The Bible goes so far to say when you do that, it's like heaping hot coals on top of their head, which some of us would be like, I'd rather just light them on fire. That sounds easier and gas isn't that expensive anymore, right? No, yeah, it is far more difficult to love your enemies, to serve those that hate you and reject you to try to be a light in the darkness in the world that operates with a value system that is absolutely anything but God. But that doesn't change the word of God. The difficult situations that we're in doesn't change how we, how we should respond to them. That the response is still the same, to love them, to serve them. Because a lot of times when you hear, and I'm gonna paraphrase, broad brush again, okay, be, be gentle, when you hear Christians and you see the attack of the world, usually we want to pick it and we want to boycott. And we want to avoid them and we want to shun them and we want to circle up and, and circle our wagons and keep any unbeliever away from us and we're going to control our environment. I think Francis Chan had the best quote about Christians. Christians, were like manure. You're welcome. When we're piled up, we're smelly and we're good for nothing. But when we're spread out into the field and we're able to fertilize, that's where we're useful. And a lot of times that we want to is pick it and boycott. We want to avoid and shun. We want to pile it up. But think about it. If we reject those that are rejecting God, we're fighting their battle using their weapons. And God never called us to use the weapons of the world. He called us to use the weapons that are in scripture. And what's the only weapon that we're given? Word of God. 
And so when we love and serve those that hate us or believe differently than us, and they look at us and say, why, why are you doing this? Because I'm a slave to Christ. I'm a believer in Jesus. This is what I'm called to do. This is what the word says. This is, this is what it means to hold fast. I mean, think about it. How, like, I've been in church for a couple of years now and have been to a few testimony nights. You ever remember those? Or every once in a while, a church might have a popcorn testimony, which is super dangerous because you never know who's going to stand up and say what. And you got to clean up some theology that could get real crazy, right? Have you ever heard anybody say, you know how I came to the Lord? There was a bunch of Christians that just hated me because I lived in opposition to the word of God and my value system matched the world and not their faith. And they hated me so much that it finally just impacted my heart. You know what? I should become one of them. <laughs> when you say it like that, we sound kind of stupid, don't we? It's almost like the mind of Christ, the heart of Jesus maybe had a different way about it. You want to frustrate your enemies? Love them. You want to reach people that just absolutely hate you? Serve them. And not once, not twice. This is the lifestyle that we are called to. All right, let's go there. This is me. This is, this is my heart that's in turmoil right now. And so I'm processing verbally. Some of you are going to hate me for what I'm about to say. Some of you, hopefully, will still love me and my wife. See, it's hard as Christians when you see the world operate differently, and we want the world to be held to the same standard of morality and value system that we have. And when it's not, we want to pick it and avoid and boycott and shun. And, and I struggle with that. You know, like I'm reading articles and listening and, and you hear a lot of things and Christians are like, well, look what they're doing to our beer cans now and how this movement around our country is now. And, you know, look what they're putting on my beer cans and we get passionate about it. You know, and I just wish the church had the same passion for the addictive and destructive nature of the contents of the can, not just the picture that's put on the outside of it. And then there's the sports. Now it's infecting our pro sports which let's not even dip our toe in pagan worship of pro sports in our country. But there's a team in California that honored the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Doesn't that just sound like a mouthful? It's a bunch of uh, homosexual men that dress up in thick makeup in nuns' attire. And you can absolutely understand what they affirm, and they are absolutely anti-God. They're not apathetic about it. They are very active about it. And they were honored by the sports team to be community heroes. No, community heroes are moms and dads that step into their kids' lives and lead and disciple them in the ways of Christ. But that's, now it's infecting our sports. And then even the dot store. Anybody know the dot store? One down the street? Can't miss? Just take aim on that... Uh, I don't say the word. There you go. Some of you got it. You know, they absolutely hired a, a Satanist fashion designer for kids' clothing. And we get fired up about it. And so half of my heart is torn one way, and the other half of my heart is, where was all of my passion thinking about the oppression of child slave labor laws to make the clothing in other countries? 
Why was I so silent then, but the moment that they print a rainbow on a onesie, I lose my ever-loving mind? Where was the passion for the oppression of the kid that made it, not just for the kid that possibly could wear it? I struggle with these things. And I wonder, what am I supposed to do? I ask the Lord. This is, this is probably the most transparent I've ever been. This is where I'm seeking the Lord. Lord, how, how do I still be a light up on a hill and shine your grace and your love and your mercy into a world that is absolutely everything apart from you? And how do I not condemn nor condone it at the same time? Where do I shop? I think the next thing is like, hey, learn how to sew and start making your own clothes. So if my clothes get real goofy, now you know why. <laughs> like, where did you get those? Don't ask. <laughs> they don't look like they fit. They don't. That's hard. That's where I'm struggling. But I know I'm not called to fight their battle and use their weapon. I know I'm called to be salt and light. I know I'm called to be a voice of hope, but if I'm in the big pile of manure, how will they hear? How will they respond, Paul says in Romans 10? How will they turn their lives to Christ if there's nobody that's sent? And we as believers live, as followers of Jesus, we live sent in our normal everyday lives where we engage. Now do you continue to keep shopping or buying those products or watching those things? I don't know. I think that's something that we each need to figure out. I think that's probably a little bit more what Paul was saying, that if in good conscience you can continue to do those things, then, then do that. But don't sin against your own conscience. So if you feel like that is sin to continue, you know, to shop at a place like that and to support an organization like that, and that's not sin to you, you're okay. And if it is sin to you, then you do restrict but what I don't want, especially here at Calvary Chapel, Lake of the Ozarks, and as, as the pastor, let me extend a little pastoral authority, where you might disagree with your brother and sister in Christ in moments like this, we will not allow it to be a moment of division and walking away from each other. That we are going to extend the grace that, you know what, the Holy Spirit working in them is going to be different than me. And we all have different upbringings and different contexts, and we're going to honor that. And, and we're going to hold fast to his word. So, like, if you see your brother walking against the word, yeah, it's on you to say something. But if it's just a conscience level sin or not, we're going to extend that. Like, me and Jerron were talking about that on the podcast. That God's working in their life, and, and it looks a little bit different. I'm not going to hate him for that. I'm not going to condemn him for it. I'm going to honor him in that. And I'm going to ask for him to honor me in the same way. But I'm going to trust that God is still in control, that he's going to allow his body to be the body of Christ. And he's going to use different parts of the body for different ministries and different ways to impact the world around us. And I'm going to trust him in it. But I think it is something that we need to process and work through. Because if we refuse to love our enemy, whatever that would look like, if we refuse to love our enemy and to serve them, understand we don't have right living and we definitely don't have right thinking, but that's not the mind and the heart of Christ. And so what does that look like for each and every one of us? Isn't that a wonderful journey that we get to begin? Seeking the Lord through his word, through his indwelling presence of his Holy Spirit in us and to say, what would you require of me? Micah 6, 8 would tell us, seek justice. 
What's that mean? That's gonna be for you to find out. Love mercy. Well, how do you show mercy? To those that need mercy. And we walk humbly with our God. That's what's required of us. And if we do that, what does he say to the one who conquers? There's hidden manna. I don't know what that is, but I love bread, right? Like if I went to uh, Serendipity and they're like, hey, we have some sourdough that we give the pagans, but we have some hidden sourdough for the righteous. I don't know what that is, but if you got some of that Texas Roadhouse butter, let's go. (laughs) I don't know what a white stone is. There's a couple theories, but what I do know is this. We have a good father and he knows how to give good gifts. I don't know what the crown of life is. I don't know what the crown of righteousness is, but if he's handing out crowns for how I lived my life, if, he's, if he has hidden manna for me, if he has a white stone with a name that only I'm gonna know, I hope it's a cool name, right? But whatever it is, I'm gonna trust the Lord because I know whatever he has for me, I won't be disappointed because he's a good father. And the lifestyle that I'm called to live is always given out of a gospel declaration that he is a good father. Let me pray with you and pray with me as we struggle through living for the Lord. Father, we love you and we trust you and we just thank you for this time together. And as we process and work through the truth of your word, I pray that it would draw us closer to you that it would be a challenging and convicting message to us, that we cannot just continue as any other day in our faith because we know that there is a day that is drawing near. And we thank you for the gospel, that you have saved us, that we can approach your throne boldly, that we can cast these cares upon you because you care for us. And so, Lord, there's, there's a lot here but such a time as this that you have called us to live faithfully in trust and obedience to you amidst this world that absolutely wants nothing to do with you. Lord, I pray that we would be the saltiest salt, that we would be the lightest light in the lake area. And more than anything, Lord, I pray that we would walk in unity in that, that we would encourage our brothers and sisters in the Lord, that we would not throw stumbling blocks before each other that we would walk faithfully with you. Give us that kind of faith. We pray it in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. The Collins, Mike and Debbie are over here, our prayer team, they would love to pray with you and for you. So if there's anything going on that you just feel like you need prayer, they would love to make themselves available to pray with you. Other than that, go love God, love others, and impact the world.